Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, good morning, friends. As it is each week, it is an honor and a privilege, and it is just good to be with you all here in worship on this morning. If you are a guest with us, I, we, are grateful that you are here, that you've chosen to be with us here at Eastside, and if you are a guest with us, I hope you have felt warmly welcomed by our community as you have entered into our multicolored rainbow doors off of Moreland Avenue. Um, if I've not had a chance to meet you, I hope to have a chance to after the worship gathering. But if you are a guest with us, it might be helpful for you to know that here at Eastside we have been in something of an extended preaching journey through what is known as the Revised Common Lectionary. And we are in year three of this journey. The lectionary is a three-year cycle of readings taken from the Old and from the New Testaments. And pastors and priests across denominations and theological traditions and across our world are encouraged in certain seasons of their church's lives, and certain seasons of their ministry, to sync their communities up with these readings, and to pick one of these four readings to, to preach from on a given Sunday. And here in year three, towards the end of year three, um, the gospel reading, and the gospels are the, the renderings of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his ministry, his teachings, there's four of them. The word gospel simply means good news. And one of the New Testament readings is always from one of the four Gospels. And the Gospel reading towards the tail end of the lectionary has us in the book of Luke, which is the third of the four Gospels. So we're going to be kind of finishing out our three-year journey in the lectionary in Luke's Gospel. And Luke's Gospel is special in that Luke, over and over and over again, he takes special care to zero in on this particular part of Jesus' ministry. He really lifts up the fact that Jesus in his ministry went out of his way to spend time with the poor, with the oppressed, with those on the margins of Jewish society. And he elevates these stories and he makes them very clear and apparent to the reader. But today we see something interesting. We see Jesus going, going even further than pushing through the boundaries of socioeconomics. This morning we see Jesus intentionally interacting with what may have been one of the most despised groups in ancient Jewish culture, in ancient Jewish society. We see Jesus interacting with and spending time with who Luke portrays as tax collectors and sinners. So friends, as I read, I invite you to pay close attention to the way Luke phrases and sets up this entire section of our reading. And as I read, I invite you to stand for the for the reading of Holy Scripture, and as I read, I invite you to listen for the word of God from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. It is written, now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. So Jesus tells them this parable, which of you having a hundred sheep, losing one of them, does not leave the 99 out in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it up on his shoulders and he rejoices. 
When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Or, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, and she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, God who seeks relentlessly, God who saves, God who restores. As I preach on this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth the meditations of all of our hearts would indeed be found right, good, and pleasing, acceptable in your sight. And God, as I preach, I pray that you would speak through the words that I have prepared and as necessary in spite of me. In Christ's name, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. There's almost this legendary... At this point, almost folklorish story that gets told when my family gathers together. And some of you maybe have heard this story a while back, but it certainly bears repeating with a text like this and on a morning like this. When I was 10 years old, all those stories that start when I was 10 years old, right? But my family, we were on vacation in Florida, and my dad bought a week-long pass to SeaWorld. And we'd already been there a couple of days, and on this particular day, it was almost closing time, so we did what tourists do on their way out of a theme park, and we went into the gift shop to peruse. And as amusement park gift shops go, there was a wide entrance in and a wide entrance out. It was more like an alleyway, right, where you could kind of walk through and and look at things and easily come in and out. It was an easily permeable space. There were people everywhere. And we were vacationing with another family who had come down from Indiana to Florida with us, which meant that there were two vehicles in the parking lot. And somehow, apparently as I was looking at stuffed animals of Shamu or something, everyone else was making their way back to the vehicles. And apparently each vehicle assumed that I was in the other vehicle, and they drove off to go back to the family with whom we were staying, which was a little near an hour and a half outside of Orlando. And the funny thing was, it wasn't until I, I realized that I was lost that panic began to set in. I was, I was fine until I heard them begin announcing on the, the speakers that it was closing time. And I started looking around, and you know that moment where just reality starts to set in real slowly, but then really rapidly? <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't have had the language for an, an oh, you know, what moment at that time, but I do now. And I just began to lose my mind. And some kind summer employees came and rescued me, and they took me to the back office. And of course, this is before the prevalence of cell phones. So it's not like I could just call my dad and say, hey, dad, you left me. 
And the story ends with me never seeing my family again. I was raised by, <laughs> was raised by killer whales and college-age summer staff at SeaWorld. Who knows how my life might have turned out differently. No. Thankfully, the names of the people we were staying with were in a, this archaic thing called a phone book. There were these really large objects that you could kill a person with. And it had a number that you could call this thing called a landline. And so thankfully, somebody was at the house when they called. They left a message and said, you left your kid at SeaWorld. So when the, <laughs> when the caravan finally arrived home, they got the message, and the dads got in one of the cars and probably drove way too fast back to Orlando to pick me up. Thing is, when they arrived, there was zero scolding. There was zero anger. There were tears. There were apologies. And there was celebration and I might have gotten ice cream on the way back. <laughs> and to this day, whenever I'm in a theme park gift shop, I just tense up and I don't know why I feel this <laughs> existential feeling of abandonment. <clears throat> Lost and found. I've been devotionally meditating on this text over the past week, and it made it hard to finally sit down and zero in on what it was I wanted to focus in on, on a text like this, because there is really just so much here. And if you have your Bibles open, then you'll note that the, the lectionary, it cuts it short um, from the third parable, which comes after these first two, which is that famous parable of the prodigal son. But before we get to the to parables that Luke recounts Jesus as telling, I want us to spend a little bit of time up front, because Honestly, the way that this text gets set out in chapter 15 is a little bit jolting. It's a little bit startling. Because Jesus, throughout Luke's gospel, he is clearly depicted by Luke as a Messiah who absolutely is in ministry first and foremost with the poor, with the oppressed, with those on the margins, the underdogs of society. That is who Luke has Jesus rooting for those who are not generationally wealthy, those who don't have land, those who aren't even on the bottom rungs of society, but they're like off away from the ladder, right? That's who Jesus spends time with, those who are born without any of the conventional advantages of right family or gender or tribal affiliation or bloodline, geography, inheritance. Jesus, who in his story, Joseph disappears very early, which makes us wonder if he wasn't himself raised by a single mother, he has eyes to see those at the bottom rungs of society. Now today, of course, we th see this as noble. We see this element of Jesus' ministry and we think to ourselves, I wish I were more like Jesus. I'm so inspired by his preference for the poor, for the outcast, for those who don't have a voice, who don't have an advocate. Oftentimes, we, as, as more progressive-leaning Christians, we can resonate and we can name what we see to be the nobility of what it was Jesus was doing in this aspect of his ministry. And these elites that are kind of watching Jesus at the beginning of Luke's chapter 15, Luke names them as scribes and Pharisees, they saw Jesus work on the margins and they probably consistently felt this twinge of guilt and this shame because they weren't doing it themselves and they knew they should be. They knew the law. They knew Torah. They knew the multitude of commandments that said that social welfare was required of Jewish society. 
not at least from the Jewish leaders. There were clear commands in Torah for the ancient Jewish people to have a social safety net for widows, for orphans, for refugees, people who couldn't adequately provide for themselves. They were to be cared for by the broader Jewish society, not least of which the religious elites who knew the law. Most of us in this space this morning, probably at some level, we resonate with Jesus' preferential treatment of the poor, of the marginalized, of the, of the oppressed, those who were born not on the bottom rung of the ladder but were born 10 feet away from it, who had no access to social mobility. And if you're anything like me in our world today, you are inspired by those people who are carrying forth this aspect of Jesus' ministry today. Those people in our world who have devoted their lives to caring for those parts of humanity who are falling through the cracks. Whether it be those who are experiencing homelessness, those who are hungry, those who need access to medical care because they can't afford health insurance. Those who are working to get young girls out of human trafficking in our city and across our world. Here's the thing. In our text this morning, Luke is really careful to let us know that Jesus, he's not spending time with those we might think of as the noble poor or the righteous, faithful, marginalized. No, Luke is very careful to tell us that he is spending time with tax collectors and sinners. Now, this phrase, tax collectors and sinners, we... We have a fair amount of historical information on tax collectors, but some commentators are a little skittish about what the word sinners sinners refers to here, but I'm going to stick my neck out and give my interpretation. I think that what is being said here is tax collectors and many other various kinds of people who would fall into the same social category or same social bucket. Tax collectors and that general posse, if you will. This whole particular kind of group of people who were probably hated by the poor people that Jesus had spent and built the entirety of his ministry on and with. Tax collectors, yes, the internal revenue system. And everyone shuddered. Everybody's favorite. You got to pay the man. You got to keep the good old government from shutting down. Except it's still shut down. Never mind. But here's the difference. For all that we may complain about the IRS, comparatively to the first century, the IRS is carefully monitored, and everything that they do goes on record. They're not allowed to just run wild and free, fast and loose. There are rules, there are records, there are checks, there are balances. But tax collectors in the ancient Jewish world, Tax collectors in the ancient Jewish world, they had no checks, they had no balances, they had no oversight, which meant they could extort these Jewish people from whom they were collecting. See, friends, tax collectors were notoriously ignoble people. They would have the the percentage or the fixed number that they were asked to collect from the people, but almost all of them would double, triple, quadruple that amount, and then they would pocket the difference. They were like vultures who preyed on an already oppressed Jewish population. And here's the thing, to add insult to injury, most of the time they themselves were Jews. 
which was even more problematic because they were collecting money for one or both of those entities who the Jewish peasantry despised. They were either collecting taxes for Caesar, their Roman occupier, their oppressor, a fellow Jew collecting money for the occupying force, or they were collecting taxes for King Herod, Israel's hated pseudo-king. He was kind of a viceroy to Rome. He was a puppet master that the Caesar controlled and everybody knew it. So Jewish tax collectors, even before they extorted the masses by multiplying the amount to be collected, just the basic fact that they were willing to collect even the amount that they were asked made them traitors. Traitors, extortionists. These seem like the very kind of people a Jesus who shows preferential option for the poor would stay very clear of, Right? After they had drawn near to him at the beginning of chapter 15, culturally speaking, the religious elites would have expected Jesus to kind of do one of these to back away and to leave, to excuse himself quietly. But there's a problem apparent right in these first two verses, and it's that Jesus doesn't slip away when they come near, when they draw near to him to listen to him. And in this moment, probably the strangest thing was happening. In that moment when Jesus didn't pull away from the sinners, from the tax collectors who were drawing near to him, two groups all of a sudden found a coalescing unity. The poor peasantry with whom Jesus had built his ministry on and the rich elite on the other hand, who already didn't really like him but now they really don't like him, joined together in both going, Jesus, what the heck are you doing? Because these people have taken advantage of all of us, right? Tax collectors had extorted the poor, they had extorted the rich, and everybody in between, because nobody got a pass on paying Caesar what was due Caesar, and Herod what was due Herod. This is a rather unsettling scene if you really sit with it. And as I reflected on it, and I tried to bring it into the modern world, I had some pretty disturbing images. And it begs some questions of my own soul. If Jesus were to come today and the Gospels were to be written in the 21st century in our context, in our culture, and Jesus, on camera, went to visit Bernie Madoff, how would we feel about that? To pull away from his ministry in the inner city with the poor or to pull away from his ministry in Haiti with those who are on the true margins of society to go visit Good old Bernie. What if when he was done visiting with Bernie, he went over to see Michael Cohen? How would we feel about that? What are you doing, Jesus? These people are extortionists. They've hurt so many people. What if he did ministry with those who have preyed on these east side neighborhoods, going door to door and selling these these loans to people that have ultimately caused their homes to go into foreclosure? What if you spent time with the wealthy builders here in our city that are the power brokers that can push their, their designs through because they have the, the strings to pull? Are we comfortable with Jesus spending time with these kinds of people? What would a part of Jesus' ministry be 
If you came in the 21st century and you spent time with crooked investment bankers, people who were intentionally selling subprime mortgages to people who knew that it would ultimately cause financial destruction, put that back on the tax collectors and then reread the story. Luke writes, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. The Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Eating with them, that is key. It would be one thing if Jesus were a pastor, right, and Bernie and Michael were on parole and they decided to visit his church to sit in the back and listen to this charismatic, brilliant rabbi teach. I don't know that the scribes and Pharisees would have cared so much if the tax collectors were in the back of a big crowd listening to what Jesus had to say about the kingdom of God. But Luke is clear that that's not what's going on here. Luke, our clear champion of the poor and the marginalized, intentionally makes it a point to say that the Jewish elites are ticked off because Jesus was willing to not only let them listen to him, but to actually sit down and share table with them and eat with them. In the first century Jewish culture, sinners didn't mean it like we use the word today. Today we say things like, well, we're all sinners, we all mess up, we all sin. But in that culture, sinner had a very particular meaning. It meant people who were perpetually and knowingly doing the wrong thing on purpose. They knew the rules and they were choosing to live a behavior outside of the rules because that's what they wanted to do without remorse or regret. Tax collectors were sinners because they knew that what they were doing was wrong, but they had grown callous to it and chose not to care. As you go back and read, he knew his Ponzi scheme was wrong. He admitted it behind closed doors multiple times, but he continued anyway. See, the religious authorities are not angry because Jesus allowed them to listen as a part of the crowd. No, they're angry because they think that Jesus just crossed the line. He sits down and he eats with them. And if you know anything about table fellowship in the ancient world, you know that eating with someone was not like grabbing a quick bite at Panera with a colleague. Dining with someone was an hours-long affair that had a rich cultural symbolic meaning. To dine with someone was to publicly extend the hand of friendship to them. And Luke is telling us that Jesus is publicly naming these sinners and tax collectors as friends. People who would not only have been despised by both the rich elites and the poor of Jesus' society, but a people who would have been written off as entirely unredeemable as outside of the realm of the possibility of salvation by broader Jewish society. These were the people that everyone had given up on. Decidedly so, and probably wanted to. So you might phrase the question like this, Jesus, why are you wasting your precious time with the reprobate? With the irrevocably, I knew I was going to do this, irrevocably lost and Luke tells us they grumble. For the elites, they grumble because Jesus is humanizing a group that they had long ago gotten very comfortable seeing as subhuman. For the poor, it probably felt like a betrayal for Jesus to sit in fellowship with those who stole from the little bit of money that they had for food and clothing. 
Which begs the question, why does Jesus do it? Why would Jesus spend time with, share a meal of friendship and fellowship with this group of people who today we would deem as criminal? Extortionists, thieves, tax fraud, collection practices that would ruin households, destroy the future of families. In today's day and age, it would cause bankruptcies and the loss of homes. Well, if Jesus is truly God among us, then very simply it means that God never truly gives up hope for any of us. Any of us. Any of us. That's what the three parables of the follower are all about. The first is this woman, and she's lost a very valuable coin. There's some dispute as to what the coin was worth. Some say it was maybe a day's wage. Some say maybe a week's wage. Others say maybe it was a coin from her dowry, so it was precious metal of some type. The point, though, is that the coin was of great value, and it was lost. Which, one of the first lessons that I think we can gather from this parable is that you can simultaneously be lost and still be of great value. And Jesus saw that in these sinners and tax collectors. They may have been lost, but they were still of great value in the eyes of God. Lostness does not have a determining factor on your actual value in the eyes of the searcher. And in the story of the woman like you or I looking for a lost $100 bill or the only set of keys to your car, begin to turn over the cushions of the couch, and I love that she decided to get the sweeper out. She decides to turn this into a cleaning event like, you know, any good homeowner would. If I've, if I've lost something, I'm not going to look everywhere. I might as well clean it while I'm going, right? Double up. And in the story, when the woman finds the coins, she is so overjoyed that she she runs out in the streets and she gathers all her neighborhoods in and she throws an on-the-spot neighborhood party. So it's this giant celebration. And one of the things that every single commentator had in common as they reflected on this text was that she probably spent more on the party, right, than the coin itself was worth. That only makes sense if the searcher is God. Amen? The point wasn't the coin's numeric value in the marketplace. The point is that you're the coin and that God's the searcher and that God in finding you is willing to spend way more than you're worth in the world's eyes to celebrate that reuniting. Moving from lost to found, God throws a party. The pattern is similar in the second parable in which we encounter a shepherd who has 100 sheep but realizes that one of them is missing and then he goes after it, leaving the other 99 and one of the misreadings of this text that has happened over the generations is the idea that the shepherd has abandoned the 99 to wild animals while going to find the one. But if you do just a little bit of cursory study about ancient shepherding, you know that it was a very dangerous and hazardous profession. So a lot of shepherds would gather together multiple herds and, and be in community together as they would shepherd their sheep. So it's not as though the shepherd just left the sheep to be destroyed by wolves. He left the sheep with the other shepherds in the hired hands so that he could go find the one. But what many commentators note is the fact that they probably would have tried to talk this shepherd out of it because going out alone at night after a sheep who's already been gone is a completely lost cause. That sheep is long gone. He's already been eaten by mountain lion or 
whatever other wild animals there are, and the shepherd's probably going to get himself attacked in the process. The point is to show a relentless refusal to give up on the lost. God is the shepherd who is willing to put God's self in peril through the incarnation to enter into this world to go, for, to go after the lost. And we know how that story progresses for the Christ. But in the story, the shepherd finds the sheep, throws it over his shoulders, and he doesn't go back to the 99 sheep. He goes into town, and he too throws this grand party with rejoicing and celebration because what is lost has been found. Again, he probably spends more money on the celebration than the sheep itself was worth. The point being, the extravagance of God when the lost has been found is over the top. The third parable that we didn't read is that of the prodigal son who, as you probably know, demands his inheritance early. He goes out to a faraway city. He squanders all of his money partying and then finally returns home broken, beaten, exhausted and asks if he can be a servant in his father's house. And in the story, the father breaks all societal codes and norms. He sees his son coming from far away. He, he, he runs to the front, embraces his son, kisses him, and says, my son was dead, now he is alive. What was lost has now been found. Friends, the moral of this, these stories is that the creator God is relentless that God never gives up on any of us. That God never stops searching for us. That God never writes any of us off as a lost cause. No matter how unredeemable we might believe that we are or that we believe others to be. Jesus was willing to be in ministry with those the poor and the rich despised. Which I think begs the question this morning... In our world today, do we refuse to imagine that God could find and bring certain people from a state of lostness to foundness? Who have we so put in that box that for them to come into a place of foundness might actually make us grumble a little bit because we've gotten so used to putting them over there? Do we believe that God is actually going after everybody all the time, seeking to save, seeking to redeem, seeking to make new? Who in our lives, who in our world, have we given up on? I think these parables force us to ask the question, and Jesus worked with the, Pharisee, worked with the tax collectors and these sinners, is to ask the question, how far does the love of God actually extend? probably further than any of us could ever ask or imagine or sometimes maybe even want. Maybe humans are the punitive ones and the creator is all about restorative, not retributive justice. I think these parables remind us that God wants every human being, regardless of what junk they've done in this world, God wants everyone to move from a state of lostness to a place of being found to come home. And at the end of the day, friends, that is really good news.
Amen. It's all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.